Um, and, you know, as we're doing this series right now on hospitality, uh, what we're talking about, I think for a lot of us, myself included, is theoretical. Uh, but, but Jeff and his family, they're, they're right there. This is their life. Uh, they, have, they have a table that seats 25 in their small French apartment. Um, and so, so I'd really encourage you to get to know him and stick around after the service. Um, we're going to get into our study uh, right now. And as I mentioned, we're doing a series called Showing Hospitality. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to pick up uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring one this morning, right in front of you, there should be one tucked into the back of the pew. Uh, that's the black ones there. And if you use the index in the front, you should have no problem finding the New Testament book of Luke. Each week, we're looking at an occasion in the Gospels where somebody is having a meal with Jesus. This occasion, though, is a little bit different than the one we looked at last week, because here, Jesus is being hosted for dinner uh, at the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisee were the, uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day um, who were committed to keeping their lives clean. They were straight-edge religiously. Uh, in fact, their name, Pharisee, comes from the Hebrew word that means separate. That's how they tried to live their lives, as different, as distinct, as away from, as uncontaminated. Um, and what happens during this meal is a woman who Luke just labels as a sinner, meaning she was probably a known prostitute, um, enters into and invades the dinner space and begins uh, to weep at Jesus' feet and breaks open a small bottle of, uh, of perfume and pours it out over Jesus' feet. This is the happening that we look at. But before we get into it, I think we need to make a clarification. Um, I was reading uh, sociologist Mary Douglas's Deciphering a Meal this week, which is a fascinating essay looking at the relationship between um, basically seeing food the way we eat as a form of communication. Uh, and it's, it's a really interesting essay, but one of the things she points out is that there's a difference between going out for drinks or even having someone over for drinks and sharing a meal. And what she suggests is, Drinks are for those relationships that are casual. They're for those relationships that are just as fluid as what you imbibe, right? The drink itself. Uh, but a meal says something more significant. You know, you may go out for drinks with your coworkers. Uh, you may go out for coffee and those types of things. When we talk about showing hospitality, it's not that, uh, you know, taking someone out even to a restaurant isn't... Uh, isn't hospitable, it's gracious, it can be merciful, it can be generous, it can be loving, all those things are true. But there's something different about hosting 
a meal in your house. Okay? And this was especially true in the ancient world. Okay? In the ancient world, uh, the table was a way that you fenced um, community. It was a, a direct expression of inside and outside. The Jews even had this expressed in their customs uh, in the fact that they uh, did not make a habit of eating with non-Jewish people. And there were some practical slash theological reasons for that. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Jews kept kosher. The way that they ate was different than the people around them. Uh, but they were also called to be a separate people. And so, for example, when... Peter finds himself in the house of a Roman centurion. The first thing he says to them is, generally, I wouldn't make house calls to a Gentile, but since God has called me here, right? That distance was a known thing, okay? Um, I think in, in our day and age where, where we rely so heavily on third spaces, where we spend much more time eating with people in restaurants than, with our, than in our home, when we tend to view our homes not as the center of public interaction like it was in the ancient world. Okay? It's where you it, it conducted business. It's where everything happened. Community lived, spread out through the houses of a community. Um, now we tend to see our house as the last place of privacy, right? These types of things. I mean, just, just for illustration in this contrast, this woman is not, uh, you know, breaking and entering into this house. Have you ever thought about that before? How does this woman come to the table in this man's house? In the ancient world, it was entirely common to have your meals in an open courtyard and for your neighbors to just come in and watch you eat, listen into the conversation. They may not have a seat at the table. They may not be able to uh, jump right in, but they could observe and they could learn. It was a natural component, okay? Uh, that's so different than the world we're dealing in today. But I want to suggest two things to you before we get started. One is that meals still share that significance, okay? When you go out for drinks or when you go out for coffee, it's me and you. When you sit at the table, it's us. When you invite someone into your house, when you take the time to cook, when you lay out a spread, uh, and when you partake together, it's us. That's what Thanksgiving says, right? Despite, you know, the crazy politics of your uncle, there's something that gets you all at the same table. It's blood is thicker than all these things, right? It's us. Food says us. And so, uh, the second thing I want to point out is, if this is really true, even if we've forgotten the nature of these things as a culture, inviting someone to your house becomes tremendously significant. It's so novel. It's so different than our normal life that, that in doing so, even if we're not actively thinking about the messages that are being conveyed, even if we've forgotten the things that uh, Mary Douglas lays out in Deciphering a Meal, that that food, the way we set our table and who we invite says things, it still speaks, and it speaks volumes, okay? Now, last week we looked at loving the stranger, and this week I want to look at eating with sinners. And I've chosen that language um, specifically because that's the language that's used of Jesus, okay? That's our starting place. That's the critique that people made of Jesus' ministry was that he ate with sinners. But... Um, but let's go ahead and read the passage together uh, here, starting in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see this uh, event in the life of Jesus with fresh eyes this morning. I ask that your spirit would fulfill his promised role to teach us. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to our neighbors uh, as well as to your divine hospitality. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospel of Luke, I read in one commentary that, uh, that the entire story revolves around meals. In any given passage, turn to any given page, and in this account of Jesus' life, and Jesus is either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or just having left a meal. It just revolves around this reality. And here, interestingly enough, a Pharisee, one of these religious rulers, invites Jesus over for dinner. Now that's striking because even at this point in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Pharisees have already put themselves in opposition to Jesus. In fact, I would suggest to you here that unlike Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who comes, also being a Pharisee, to talk to Jesus after dark because he has an, a curiosity, an interest he has things he needs to know. He, he wants to investigate Jesus. Here, this offer is a bit more hostile in its intention. Okay. The Pharisee is putting Jesus to the test. He wants to, uh, like the Pharisees are seen throughout the gospel doing, catch Jesus in the act. He wants a front row seat so he can identify what's wrong with Jesus and his ministry. That's really the interest here. In fact, we can see that because he doesn't even show Jesus the normal forms of Eastern hospitality. You know, traveling on foot uh, in the Middle East uh, day after day is dirty business. And so a normal practice would be to offer a way for your guests to wash their feet as they enter into your house. Um, anointing with oil was a sign uh, not just um, of welcome but of peace. 
Uh, and then he mentions as well uh, that Simon doesn't do, uh, do anything in terms of kissing him, which is, which is the Eastern equivalent of a handshake. It's, it's a sign of welcome. And so Jesus is present in the house, but calling him a guest is probably a bridge too far. He's more like a subject. Okay. He's here to be observed and to be watched, to be interrogated. And interestingly enough, Jesus goes. He comes to this meal. Jesus was open to the invitation of others throughout, and so he finds himself at this table. Um, And then notice again what happens in verse 37. During the meal, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And so this woman, who we do not know by name, and we only know by reputation, a reputation that's so well known that not only does Simon, this Pharisee, uh, know it, uh, but he also assumes that any true prophet of God would know it as well. Okay. He, uh, she has a reputation, and it's worth pointing out here that, um, you know, in modern idiom, she's from the wrong side of the tracks. She has a house elsewhere. Uh, But she's not going to be invited to the Pharisee's house anytime soon. And I would assume he's not going to be invited to her house either. The fact that these two people are in the same room at the same time is for one reason and one reason only, because that's where Jesus is. And so she comes in, (coughs) and remember here, this is a Middle Eastern table, and so Jesus is reclining on one arm with his feet behind him and the table in front of him, and she comes up behind him and begins to weep. Uh, It says here, she, uh, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of his heads and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, just as a side note, generally when you would anoint uh, somebody with with a flask like this, uh, with perfume like this, with ointment like this, you would anoint them on their heads, okay? Um, But she focuses entirely on his feet, which is probably an expression of humility. But the second thing we need to recognize here is how tremendously intimate this is. Okay. Uh, here she is not just weeping onto Jesus's body, specifically his feet, but she's wiping up the tears with her hair. Okay. Now, in Jewish culture, women kept their hair up at all times in public and only took it down for their spouse, okay? Uh, This is one of the reasons why we believe that she's probably labeled a sinner here because she was a prostitute, uh, because this is such a flagrant disregard of that. This was such a serious thing in Jewish culture that it could be, in certain circles, ground for divorce for your woman, or excuse me, for your wife to let down her hair in public, okay? Not only that, but she begins to kiss his feet. That's intimate, is it not? It is possible, possible that I have kissed my children's feet. Possible, okay? I cannot confirm nor deny if that has happened, and I would say the same thing even for my wife. It's tremendously intimate, and because of that, it's instantly offensive, okay? Like I said, Simon here is a Pharisee. He's devoted himself to a a life of purity, and that means avoiding 
contagion, keeping a distance from things that would dirty him. And so when he sees this action with Jesus, he finds it questionable, okay, because it's so intimate. You see, he's offended here that Jesus would be in such close relationship with a woman like that. Right? That's, that's the simple idea here. In fact, he sees that as being all the evidence he needs to prove that Jesus isn't who he appears to be. He says, uh, look, in verse 29, he said to, uh, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So he, he, he basically makes a premise on two grounds. He says, if this man was really a prophet, one, he'd be able to perceive what type of a woman this was, and two, he'd keep his distance. Okay. So the, the conclusion then is Jesus must not actually be a representative of God. Um, now, here's the thing. Last week, we talked about loving the stranger. That was about inviting people into your home you do not know. The tension of this story has to do someone who you know very well, right? She has a reputation. She's notorious, right? What we're talking about this morning is is not getting to know people who are different than you, who are distant from you, inviting them into your home. What we're talking about here is table fellowship with sinners, okay? And once again, I want to remind you that that's Uh, that's language that is used of Jesus's critics of this situation, okay? She's labeled here as a sinner. Uh, She has a reputation, and that's what's so offensive, okay? Now, what does this look like in your life? It may, uh, may or may not involve eating with prostitutes, but this, of course, would also apply to the fragrant, or excuse me, the flagrant uh, atheist in your office, uh, to your Muslim neighbor, to the very likely a drug, drug addict who lives in the apartment next door, uh, to the person for the other political party that you believe to be corrupt, uh, who who you've uh, you know have in your uh, in your relationship. What we're talking about here um, are are those who we would label sinner. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, you may not use that language, but you express that same distance, okay? There are people who you would not invite over for dinner, okay? Because what they're about and what they express is just too offensive. It wouldn't be too far to say that uh, Simon looks at this woman and says that she's effectively playing for the wrong team. They're enemies. Okay. Uh, I was reading an article this morning, rereading one that I had encountered a while ago, about Canon Andrew White, who's a bishop uh, in the Anglican Church in Baghdad. Uh, and when Baghdad was surrounded by ISIS, okay, and things were getting hot a few years ago, he contacted ISIS and invited them over for dinner. And they said, yes, we'll come to dinner, and then we'll take your head. 
And he said, after that, I didn't invite them anymore. But uh, Canon Andrew White has made his life and his ministry about extending peace, about being an agent of peace. And because of that, he's found himself in crazy situations throughout his life. And the end of the article ends with a quote with him, and he says this. He says, if you want to be a peacemaker, then you're going to have to have dinner with bad people because good people don't start wars. That's, that's the tension of what we're talking about. And so we may all visualize a different person who wouldn't make the guest list. But like I said, that shows that we have this same instinct, this fencing of the table, this limitation of hospitality, the distinction between us and them. And when we see here Jesus' personal space being invaded by this woman and he receives it openly, it's because this, who Je- this is who Jesus was in general. He ate with sinners, and that was one of the great critiques that was made. Why would Jesus accept an invitation to that person's house? Why would he be seen in the company of those people? Why would he walk up to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and say, hey, go prepare lunch, I want to have lunch at your house today? Now, you may be bothered by the slut-shaming of the Pharisee here, but just reverse it. Why is Jesus at the table of the Pharisee? This self-righteous, religious, oppressive individual. Jesus ate with everybody equal opportunity, even the one he knew would betray him. Right? He knows what's coming out of Judas. He understands, and yet Judas is at the Last Supper. And when Jesus breaks the bread and hands it out, he hands it to Judas, fulfilling the prophecy in the Psalms that he who broke bread with me has betrayed me. This was the status quo, the normative for Jesus' life, and it was tremendously offensive because it was so terribly radical. See, For this, the Pharisee looks at Jesus and disqualifies him. And he disqualifies him because he says, basically, Jesus must not really know this woman. He must not really see what's going on here. What's striking is that when Jesus responds to Simon, first, notice that he responds to Simon's thoughts. Did you notice that? This isn't something that Simon even, you know, like jumps up from the table and goes, I knew it. He's thinking to himself, there we go. There's the evidence I need. And so he thinks this to himself, and Jesus answers his thoughts. Verse 40, Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And he tells this parable. Now, we'll return to the parable in just a second, but I want you to notice uh, what he says in verse 44 after the parable. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Do you see this woman? Okay. Why does Jesus ask that question? Is it because she's, you know, snuck in so sneakily that he's not sure Simon's aware? No, he's directly addressing Simon's awareness and observation of this issue. And he says, do you see this woman? You see, for Simon, it's because he sees her that he disqualifies this action. But Jesus says, you don't see rightly. You don't actually see what's going on here. Simon is wrongly perceiving what's happening in this household. That's the problem. It's a problem of perception. 
When we talk about eating with sinners, it expresses how we see. Simon doesn't understand who he is. He doesn't understand who the woman is, and he doesn't understand who Jesus is. So let's look at the parable that Jesus tells. It's a pretty simple one, and it's not hard to recast it with the people in the room that night. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Okay, You're probably <coughs> not familiar with the currency there. So let me put it in terms you can understand. 500 denarii, that's two and a half years worth of wages. Okay, a denarii is a day's wage. Okay, uh, 50 is about two months, almost three worth of wages. Okay, so they're both significant debts, uh, but one of them is 10 times as large. Both of them have nothing to pay, but verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Okay. And so here, they come out of debt, the debts being unequal, but neither of them from their own action, just from the generous forgiving of the debt of the one they owe money to. Okay. And then Jesus asks this question, which of them, which of the debtors will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled a larger debt. Now I want you to notice about his answer that at best here, he responds to it theoretically. This is just a topic of discussion. Okay? He doesn't necessarily draw out the point or the significance for himself. When he adds here, I suppose, he puts it in the hypothetical. Just a topic of conversation, just something to be thought through. But he does get the point. He goes, well, if there's one that's going to express love more flagrantly, I would imagine it's the one who's been forgiven more greatly. Right? I'd imagine it'd be the one who had a greater debt, who feels every dollar owed and removed, who would respond in a greater way. And it's at this point that Jesus agrees. He says, you have judged rightly. He says, that's an accurate statement. Verse 44, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I want you to notice here, when he points to the woman, he's trying to recalibrate Simon's perception. He wants him to really see her. And in doing so, he actually wants him to really see himself. Because how does he want him to see the woman? Do you see this woman? Let's look at her in contrast to you, Simon. Do you see the statements that follow? Here is how you have treated me tonight. And here is how this woman has treated me. Okay. And so effectively, what Jesus is making here is a place for this woman and her behavior in Simon's house. He's making room for her. Like we said, Jesus eats with sinners. What's Simon's problem? I think the tendency would to be look, look at what, what Simon is doing and his rejection of this woman and see the problem as being that Simon is too serious about sin. That this need for rigidity and righteousness and the demands of the Old Testament law have become so significant in his life that it's actually a grounds of division and a distancing from other people and it leads to a denying of dignity and all of these things. But when Jesus responds, his argument is actually that Simon doesn't take sin seriously enough. 
Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't deny the reality of this woman's sins. In fact, at least by way of illustration, he doesn't even challenge the idea that they might be equal sinners. Right? In the parable, who is what character? Obviously, Jesus, who at the end of this story turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven, he is the moneylender. He is God himself whom all sins are against and therefore the only one who can forgive. He's present at the table and the two debtors, the one owing the great debt is the woman and the one owing a debt, but a lesser debt. That's the contrast, right? That's how the characters play out here. Jesus doesn't deny the sinfulness of the woman. In fact, notice what he says in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, right? He clearly identifies there. And and like I said, he may just be making a caveat. Granted, they are many. He may just be responding to his perception, but he doesn't deny the significance or the seriousness of sin. You see, there's this tendency to rightly in our culture reject Simon's mentality that sees ourselves as better than other people uh, and creates barriers and distance from other people. Uh, And we replace that then uh, by denying the significance or the reality of sin. We just say, look, it's not that big, big of a deal. That's not the approach that Jesus takes. In fact, we need to understand here why it is that Jesus eats with sinners. One of the times that Jesus is criticized, he gives another parable, and this is what he says. He says, a doctor does not come for the healthy, but for the sick. I did not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Why does Jesus go to the house of sinners? Because he's a doctor who makes house calls. And let me remind you that that's why Jesus is at Simon's house. See, here's the thing. Jesus here points at Simon's hospitality as being lacking. He criticizes it. He says, you haven't even kept the standard protocol of hospitality for me, and yet this woman has. Why wasn't Simon hospitable to Jesus? Remember that Simon, as a Pharisee who's committed to the Old Testament law, has devoted himself to righteousness. And here stands before him the one who does all things who please the Father, who the whole testimony of the law points to, the one true righteous without sin, in always tempted, the author of Hebrews tells us, yet without sin. He's a perfect expression of this, and yet he doesn't even qualify in Simon's eyes for hospitality as being an equal. There's a blindness, once again. He doesn't really see who Jesus is. But deeper than that, why doesn't he show Jesus' hospitality? When we talk about eating with sinners, if Jesus was walking the earth right now, and you invite him over for dinner, that advice would not apply. Am I right? Uniquely, hosting Jesus, like Simon is doing tonight, plays by different rules. Okay. The only thing that leads to being hospitable to Jesus, the thing that's lacking in Simon's life, 
is a sense of need. That's the difference between her and the woman. Why does she respond in such an intimate and overwhelmingly public display? Why does she break this alabaster flask, something of quite a lot of value, and pour it out on Jesus' feet? Why does she take her hair and wipe his feet with her hair? What is this love that she's expressing? It's a sense of Jesus meeting a tremendous need. It's a sense of Jesus resolving a terrible debt. It's that forgiveness. This is a response to what Jesus has done for her. Simon doesn't need Jesus. There's a church, the church of Laodicea, that Jesus, through the author John, writes to in the book of Revelation. And I want you to listen to the situation they're in, and I want you to remember that these people that are being written to are the church. These are people who have responded to the gospel, who believe in Jesus, who represent Christ on earth. They are Christians, but listen to what Jesus says to them in Revelation. He says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, there's a problem. He says, I wish, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I have no use for you. But listen to it. He says this, verse 17, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, your perception is that you're perfect and in need of nothing. You're wealthy. He says, but I tell you in truth, you're poor. You say that you see things as they are, but I say that you are blind. You say that you are beautifully dressed, but you are actually naked. And he says, I have what you need. Now listen to this. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, you may have heard that in an evangelistic sense before. As an invitation, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He's knocking. Let him in. That's not the context of this verse. Jesus can't get into his own church. He's been excluded from the church that bears his name. He's on the outside knocking on the door and offering to come in and eat with them. Why can't he? Because they don't see their need. Simon doesn't see his need. He has no need for Jesus. He's doing quite well on his own, thank you very much. He stands on his own righteousness, uh, you know, getting high on his own supply, impressed with his own works before God. And because of that, he's inhospitable. Not just to sinners, but to Jesus himself. Listen. When we limit our table... When there are people who are disqualified from dining with us, it's because we don't understand the seriousness of sin. And first and foremost, because like Simon, we don't understand the seriousness of our own sin. Maybe it's true. Maybe if you could do the addition, Simon is not a great, uh, as great a sinner as this woman. 
Maybe the crimes committed by the person you have in your mind are much more heinous and unjustifiable than your own. But if you rightly understand the truth that Scripture presents, whatever debt Jesus has repaid for you, you had nothing to pay. Nothing. The only reason you stand and sit at the table of Jesus Christ is because he has freely invited you at his own cost. Grace. And so when we distance ourselves from others and we say, well, yes, I need Jesus, but not like that person. When we draw a line and we fence the table and say, you cannot eat with me because you are a sinner, then Jesus can't eat with us either. For generations, the world has been looking for a label large enough to unify around. And every once in a while we try, how about human? Isn't human enough? And there's a truth in that, right? For us as Christians, of all people, we should understand that because every human being is created as an image bearer of God, they have inherent dignity. But even that is just a placeholder. It's not enough. The only thing that will get you to open the table is to take that unified label of sinner. You see, for this to work, we have to recognize that even when we're a host, we're a guest. We have to see ourselves as being recipients of the feast that Jesus has laid, and when that's freely offered, it opens all things. Now, I think it's easy to go, okay, great, I see that. It, it tears down our self-righteousness. It opens us up to other people. But it's also being serious about their sin. Why do we invite the sinner over for dinner? Why do we invite the enemy to the table? It's not because, hey, look, Jesus died. Everything's taken care of. No, that's not the way it works. If they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, this is a high-stakes meal. In the book that I've recommended for you guys, that we still have copies of in the back, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield makes this point about the seriousness of sin. She says, Jesus dines with sinners, not because sin is no big deal. Jesus dines with sinners, not because he expects us to go on sinning. Jesus dines with sinners, not because he knows that some of us are just more prone to certain sins than others and he gives us a free pass when our inclinations lead us to sin. Jesus dines with sinners not because the Roman government made certain sins into a protected class of citizenship. The law of the land do not nullify the laws of God. Jesus dies with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us, so that he can participate in the intimacy of table fellowship as a healer and a helper. Jesus comes to change us, to transform us so that after we have dined with Jesus, we want Jesus more than the sin that beckons our fidelity. If we take the sins of our neighbors seriously, then we will recognize that the wages of sin is death. And like Jesus, we will make house calls. We will invite them to the table, not just to share our food with them, but to share the gospel with them, the good news that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief and he died for you as well. Okay. Hospitality is an expression of the seriousness of sin and we need to be a church that takes sin seriously and takes the gospel more seriously. That actually believes 
that the message of Jesus Christ can change and transform those who are labeled the worst, those who are the most distant from God. Not just the sinful woman in this story, but the Simons, the self-righteous and the Pharisees, the hostile and the bigoted. And I want to be clear here. This idea of hospitality is more than just a single meal. What I'm telling you is not you need to invite people over and then you can just give them both barrels. That's not the idea here. Another point that Rosaria makes in her book is that the words of a Christian should never outweigh the relationship. Right? We live in a world that is filled with hostility across distance. And so we're very vocal and verbal and critical on Twitter with people that we've not met, have not seen. Okay? Christians, in contrast, establish relationships. They turn strangers into friends and friends into family. And it's in the context of that long-standing hospitality, that invitation not just into the table but into our lives, that we earn the right to speak. The Bible calls us to speak the truth in love. Love is the context the only appropriate context. It's not just that we say things lovingly, it's that we live a life of love and then our words are rightly placed in the midst of them. Okay. And so here, what we're talking about in this you know, hospitality, the question is once again a simple one. It's do you take sin seriously? It's do you understand your own need for Jesus, understand your neighbor's need for Jesus? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Okay, and so what we're talking about here is not just being friendly. What we're talking about here is, is not just merely being a good neighbor in some sort of antiquated sense of hosting a barbecue and knocking on your neighbor's door. What we're talking about here is gospel work. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be the church. Some preacher a long time ago said the church is the only institution in the world that exists for those who aren't its members. That's what Jesus was about. Jesus didn't go over, for, over to dinner uh, because of his own needs, but because of ours. I'm giving you permission to eat with those people, to be like Jesus, and to invite into your lives those who will tarnish your reputation, those who your friends uh, and your coworkers will find questionable, because that's who we are, because that's what Christ has done for us. Okay. This woman rightly understands who Jesus is. And the amazing thing, once again, is if we receive Christ's hospitality, if we respond like the woman does at Jesus' feet, Jesus says in the book of Matthew that we will treat the stranger and the orphan and the widow and the poor and the least and the sinner this way. Because as much as we've done it to them, we've done it to Jesus. 
What does it look like to respond to this great forgiveness available to the gospel, the wiping free of our debts? It looks like eating with sinners, carrying the message and conveying it to our neighbors, loving people because they are made in the image of God and because God is interested in a relationship with them. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I can't speak for other times and cultures, but it's hard for me not to believe that we are the most self-righteous generation that has ever lived. We've turned it into a game, Lord, of distancing ourselves from those who disgust us and being quick to sever ties with anyone who offends, to demonizing those who commit the greatest cultural sins and cutting them off entirely with no road back from being one of us. But you've called us as a church to a different mission, to a mission of love, You've called us to open our homes to those we disagree with, to those who believe differently, to those whose lives are ensnared with terrible sins or blindly embraced. For the bigot and for the barfly, for the sex worker and the corrupt politician, even for our enemies. And God, we can't do that on our own and we cannot earn our way by doing so, Lord. The only way this works is for us to see afresh the free invitation you've given us at the table. The truth is, Simon's probably not a less sinner than the sinful woman. Her sins are sins of the flesh, They probably come with bound circumstances and oppression as uh, prostitution often does, but his, his greatest sin is pride. His wreaks havoc on his own soul and the lives of others. His problem is not that he'll never love Jesus as much because he just doesn't need him. His problem is until he sees his need for Christ, he'll never love him as he deserves. I pray that you would rectify that in our own hearts. Make us a hospitable people, Lord. We pray that you would do this in us with your help in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond in worship, let's just reflect on the character of God. And I haven't looked at what songs we'll be singing, but I have no doubt that they'll express these truths. That we are the lost who have been found. That we are the debtors uh, whose debt has been paid. That we are the ones who have been forgiven. And so reflect on that. Rejoice on that. Receive it afresh. And then in your own time, if you're a Christian this morning, come come forward and partake of the meal. Recognize that you need the nourishment Christ offers in his own cross when he says, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. Come and partake and receive as a sinner, a sinner who needed a savior. Let's take some time.